0: I'm Kim Cutable, an author, producer, and entrepreneur. Voice Lessons is a podcast about what, why, and how women create and the way that they lead. In this moment, it can feel exhausting holding the weight of the world's problems on our shoulders. One thing I know for certain is that it's going to take all hands on deck to speak the truth about what isn't working, even when we're afraid, so that we can figure out what will together. Author, speaker, activist, and movement builder Alexis Jones believes in audacious ideas. Her company, I Am That Human, works with the biggest, baddest people, brands, organizations, campaigns, and initiatives to inspire and innovate humanity. She is the winner of the Jefferson Award, our country's highest national honor for public service, and has been featured in Oprah's Super Soul 100 and AOL's Makers, among many accolades. I spoke with her about the work she's doing with women and men, about grace, forgiveness, And the power of saying exactly what you think.
1: I'm Alexis Jones, and this is a lesson on how to change the conversation.
0: What is your earliest
1: memory of being creative? I love questions on the spot where you have to be like, I'm not prepared for this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I was nine years old. I was super passionate about having a Siberian Husky in Texas, which makes zero sense. <laughs> and I put together like this entire my mom references this all the time. She was like, you put together this entire like presentation for her and I like landscaped how I was gonna take care of this dog and I used to say she still said no but I remember thinking like oh my gosh I was like drawing pictures of where the dog was gonna live and all the things and that was the first time that kind of this creativity of like bringing together this vision of something that didn't yet exist and would never exist however I would say that was the first time that I really kind of like leaned into you can come up with something inside of your brain that doesn't exist in the world and you can work towards making that happen. It's a vision board. You're vision boarding Mm -hmm. early on. Major.
0: So many aspects to your business. And I don't know if you Mm -hmm. consider yourself a brand, but I Am That Girl. Mm -hmm. What was the inspiration for
1: I Am That Girl and when was it born? It was definitely born around 19 years old. And I think For a long time, I had these really eloquent answers during interviews where I was like, I just really cared about girls and women. And I think it took me getting older to recognize the truth that it's not that I wasn't being truthful in that response. It was just the realization as I got older that I created I am that girl because I needed it. Like that Uh was the most honest answer was that I grew up a poor kid in a rich kid neighborhood and I had a whole lot of insecurities about that. Uh And then I got a scholarship and I moved out to sunny Los Angeles, California, going to USC, Uh University of Spoiled Children. And all of a sudden, (laughs) all of those insecurities Uh were. You know, on magnified, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I was part of a sorority, which some of my sorority sisters are to this day some of my best friends. And I remember we would meet every week, and we had this Bible study. and And I remember one day I came in and I said, "Listen, we have a lot of conversations about things that don't matter, right? Like mm-hmm. clothes and shoes and boys and all sorts of stuff. And what if once a week we had conversations about things that really did matter? Would that interest you? And would you come?" And that first meeting, six girls showed up, and six meetings later, I had 347 girls showing up. So that was kind of my aha moment that I wasn't the only one who was like starving for Mm -hmm. authenticity, for a safe place before safe spaces was ever like a word, but just this idea of what does it look like to come together with a group of incredibly diverse women, intentionally diverse, and for us to really be honest with each other and to support each other. And so that was kind of the moment that I was like, I'm not alone. Other Mm -hmm. girls want this too. And other girls need this as well. Mm -hmm. And then you took it online. You said as a brand and as a company, the next iteration was how do we recruit more girls that aren't just in the tangible ecosystem of here at USC. But, you know, the idea that I didn't think USC was particularly unique per se, in that I felt like girls need girls, women need women. And so the next thought was like, of course, we're going to take this online and see if it resonates with other people. And before you know it, we have, you know, 1.2 million people community who clearly are passionate about it.
0: How do you keep that message on brand across or is it different? And is there flexibility to, Did the mission yeah. grow out of all the women coming together in a different way?
1: I think no matter what, even as a founder of any kind of business or any kind of movement organization, the vehicle doesn't really matter. I think a founder has a vision for something. And I think if you're a true founder, you have the humility to recognize that it's just a tapestry and everyone is a different color thread in that tapestry. And so for me, I think having the initial, the impetus and the spark for I and that girl, but truthfully, I mean, women have grabbed it and run with it. Mm -hmm. and created so much of their own thing. And I think that was a big part of kind of our pillars in it where I am but one girl originally from Texas. I have a very, very specific perspective to myself. We wanted every single girl, every single woman, every single person who identifies as female, we wanted all of them to be able to feel like it was a home That's probably why as a brand, back to kind of the business side of things, when you have a brand that has the flexibility and malleability hardwired into the the DNA of the brand, I think that the longevity and the scalability is so much greater inherently because people see themselves as a part of it, as opposed to having to mold to the brand, we mold to the individual. So can you tell me about the squads? Squads, I mean, we always say we're we're 21st century, a badass version of Girl Scouts uh, for older girls, right? Because girl Scouts, I was a Girl Scout. and I'm a huge fan of Girl Scouts. And when we say badass, we just mean kind of an edgy taboo. We're going to talk about the hard, messy parts of life. And being a huge fan of the Girl Scouts and having been a Girl Scout, the idea was Girl Scouts. in when you turn 18, when you graduate high school and, and I and that girl picked up right where that ended was just kind of this figuring out who you are in this world and creating your own voice in your own kind of unique identity
0: you've become visible you're the face of the organization even though it is about every other woman you lead it was that a challenge or were were you always the person who loved to be in front of the audience
1: i think visibility is definitely double-edged sword and i think learning how to manage visibility because i think the moment as a human and i think it's something i i've certainly struggled with over the years because the expectations and quite frankly, the the validation that exists outside of you. I think it's really easy to lose who you are in a world in which we are crowdsourcing confidence outside of ourselves. And I think visibility offers you that temptation of being like, oh, but I can all of these people have all of these ideas and all of these opinions. Cause that's really what visibility is, right? It's it's the mere recognition that people now have an opinion on your life. And often strangers have an opinion on their life. And because of social media, it's made those opinions directly communicated to you. And so I think that there've been different moments in my life in which, you know, I've kind of started becoming who I thought people wanted me to be because all of a sudden this is resonating and people love this part of my personality. And I think you can get a little pigeonholed and Mm -hmm. you can start living, like I said, kind of for the attention and the approval of others. And I think throughout my life, that temptation of having to reel it back in and having to be like, but who am I regardless of you know, what other people want me to be? Who am I? What is my true north? What does my compass say? And visibility just creates a whole lot of distraction. So being able to navigate that, of staying authentic to who you are, kind of in the midst of the cameras and quite literally the stages that I'm on, figuring out how to kind of pull away from that and, and to have this, quality time where I get to continue to reinvent myself so that I'm not kind of this stale version of myself because it reminds me of a band, right? Every time a band has like an epic CD and everybody loves it and people come to the concert, they're like, I don't want to hear these new songs. (laughs) I want to hear the (laughs) old songs that I love. And I think visibility creates that. It's really easy for people to want you to stay where you are because that's what they're comfortable with. And that forced personal growth to me has been the real challenge in the midst of it.
0: So two questions spring from that. The first is, do you have any practices, any spiritual practices that help mm-hmm. you internal to your sure. conversation? Mm-hmm. And then secondly, can you think of a time in your organization's growth when the external, the, mm-hmm. the you know, the, physical, the sure. audience wanted to go one way and you yep. wanted to another and what did you mm-hmm. decide and how did you then lead
1: them? Oh, gosh, girl. I, I mean, that's how I exist every day or my spiritual practices and kind of this idea of having my like really sacred routine that happens every morning. And I learned this from Gina Rudon, who had an incredible TED talk, and she was talking about these sacred practices and this idea that everyone else can wait. And mm-hmm. so in the morning, to me, that looks like meditation, that looks like prayer time, that looks like connecting with the God of my understanding, Mm-hmm. And getting quiet. I mean, more than anything, I would say more than the doing because I can be someone who's like, I'm gonna journal because it feels very productive to me like I'm gonna sit down and write things much harder for me and my personality is just getting really quiet and really still. So in the mornings, I'll sit on my little yoga pad, I light my candle and I literally just sit there even if I don't feel like it from like minimum 20 minutes. And like I said, try to connect with with my creator and just ask, "What do you want of me today?" By all means, yes. infuse me. I think that's part of it. I think also, uh, human beings, I think, are like angels incarnate. And I'm really, really blessed by like the caliber of humans that I have in my life—both my friends, my family, my husband. Mm-hmm. That is sacred to me. Like that sacred circle of people that I choose to surround myself with and who love me back to life in the moments in which I totally forget who I am and/or I'm having a, a meltdown for whatever reason. So I would say those are kind of my sacred practices or just the people who remind me who I am and who I want to be and quite frankly who aren't yes people. That's really important mm-hmm. to me. I don't want people who are just always t- always telling me that I'm amazing. I want people who when I'm getting astray and they pull me back lovingly, you know, like hey, like my dad always <laughs> says like you're getting too big for your britches. You know, mm-hmm. like someone who has the courage and the vulnerability to rumble as Brene Brown would say, that's important to me. As far as kind of within the context of I Am That Girl, and this is like a very particular issue I'm very passionate about because I, think, I don't think in the entrepreneurial world we talk about this enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great book called The E-Myth, and yeah. it basically like outlines right that, the idea no, that you're right. like one of three things, but there's no way that you're a serial entrepreneur who also is this talent, who is this incredible vision and you love managing people and it's and it really helps you get very specific about the thing that you love the most. And I think when I was starting I and that girl, my passion has always been people. It's always right. been in service of others, period. The idea that i could go into a room and that i could lecture at different conferences but then that i could hug on all these girls and all these women and like the 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 real physical opportunity to be proximate to girls and women was the thing that lit me up and i felt like at a certain point people were like i am that girl needs to be a business it needs to be you know this this and this and you have to skill it and you you know and i fell into that trap when they talk about the woman in the book who loved to bake and mm-hmm. people kept saying, you're an incredible baker, you should start your own bakery. And it, you know, she kind of was like, Okay, that's the thing. That's what <laughs> to do, You know, And before you know it, she's, you know, doing accounting, and she's doing hiring and firing and marketing. And all of a sudden, she's not baking anymore. And she kind of has this meltdown. And is like, but what I love is baking, ah, I don't love, you know, all this other stuff. And I think I had a real moment where everyone kept being like, you should do this, you should do this. And I took on a very CEO role. So all right. of a sudden I was in the minutiae of all the details. I was overseeing all of our accounting and all of our legal and, you know, all of the things, which by the way, a lot of people love that. Like right. a lot of people that dr- Excel sheets drive them, you know, whereas <laughs> for me, I'm like, Oh, oh please. And, yeah. And so all of a sudden I, I stopped doing all my speaking engagements. I stopped mm. doing all the conferences. I stopped even meeting with all the girls You know, whether it was FaceTiming and being a part of their squads or whether it was showing up to chapter meetings, I stopped all of that. And I started being a CEO and I couldn't understand why I was so distraught, so miserable. I couldn't, you know, and it wasn't until I read the e-myth that I was like, ah, like that story resonated so much with me of this female baker who all of a sudden was like, I just love to bake. And I had a real moment of, you know, shifting gears within the leadership roles and saying, you know, that minutiae and those details don't interest me as much as being proximate to human beings. And if I am not able to at least have 50-50 to where I can be in the details, I can be and execute, I can execute on things, I can create the vision, I can be a part of all those conversations. But if I don't have the real like tangible interaction with people, then I lose all my passion. And so that was a real... Awakening for me of like, oh wow, even though this role feels impressive, what's more impressive is me being genuinely, you know, filled with joy every day.
0: Do you think that women
1: lead differently? And if yes, how? I think that there's a difference between a masculine energy and feminine energy. And I think that every human being poses kind of a, a combination of both of those. But I think from a, a leading with a femininity, which I think leadership requires both of it. And it's really up to each individual, I think of what you lean into. I think for me, because I grew up with four older brothers, I grew up in a very masculine environment. I was an athlete. I worked at Fox Sports ESPN. I've always been around a whole lot of men. I think that A lot of it is nature nurture and that nurture aspect was I learned how to communicate very directly, which men predominantly communicate very directly. And I remember being 14 years old and having this kind of aha moment of that distinction when we talk about feminine, masculine energy. And I remember being in a room with like five of my brother's friends and the window was open and I was cold. And I remember, like, looking around, and, and this is this is how a lot of women, how we're taught and programmed from a very young age, is this idea of getting consensus, which is a beautiful quality about feminine leadership, right? Is that we really, I mean, t- you talk about democracy, like, we really want to hear, we want everyone heard and seen. And I remember looking around the room and being like, um, is anyone cold? You know, <laughs> and, and they're like, all the guys, like, look at me, and they're like, what? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, are are y'all cold? Do do you want the window open? And I remember my brother's. I'll never forget my brother's friend looking at me, being like, "Are you cold? Do you want to shut the window?" And I was like, "Oh well, yeah." I mean, and he was like, "Then shut the window," you know. And that was always like the perfect example between like men and women is like, oftentimes stereotypically speaking, when women have to go to the bathroom, we're like, "Does anyone have to go to the bathroom?" Okay, you know. And then we like go with our buddy. And like I said, I think I think it's a really beautiful characteristic of, of feminine leadership. And I think that I've had to learn and how to balance both of those and that there are times to lean into one and times to lean into another.
0: When I was, I, you know, and I'm pretty direct too, because as mm-hmm. a producer, I'm just like, oh, "What? let's sure. get it done, right? Yep. But does that get you into trouble in scenarios with women at all?
1: It does. I, I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's an art, you know, I think it is like a learning to lean into which arena because there's are some women that I made total assumptions about that I was like, Oh, I feel like she's just like hard, like badass, <laughs> like we use words to describe it that are like edgy and, you know, and then in the middle of communicating with her, I could see that she was super sensitive right and then i was like oh god like <laughs> you know and so to me communication and leadership style i think it takes a lot of humility back to that word of like malleability back to that word of flexibility back to that word of almost this emotional intelligence to recognize that whoever is before you whether it's a man whether it's a woman whether like regardless of how they're dressed regardless of how they're you know, coming across what their job title is, I think so much of leadership is recognizing my only job is to take the time to learn how the human being in front of me needs to be communicated to. I learned that from Coach Pete Carroll, who was our football coach at USC, who really said, for me to be the best coach that I can be, I have to learn the style of every single one of my athletes to figure out how I can motivate them best. And for some of them, it's screaming profanities, finger in their face. For other ones, it's pulling them aside and being like, "Listen, man." you got to work harder, right? I mean, right. and for every single one of them. So I think, and that's not dodging the question of whether I think communicate differently in leadership. It's more, I just think that it, it's one finding your authentic style, which like I said, being, you know, growing up with so many men, I think my authentic style tends to be, I, I gravitate, my default setting is more of like a masculine leadership. And I've really had to learn how to include the feminine side of me as well. But yeah, I think it's a combination of like how what authentically works for you and taking the time to figure out like what makes you tick. And then also taking the time to figure out how the person in front of you needs to be communicated with or to. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm curious, for what cause or reason are you willing to be unpopular?
1: Oh, good question. I think that even back to that spiritual practice, I think that so much of kind of how I operate has always been in alignment with a truth that feels greater than me. So whether that's working with women and in, in, in being maybe insatiably and inherently curious about like, how did we get here? I think that so much of my work starts with a question of like, has it always been this way? Have girls always been like, really mean to each other in middle school years? You know, have we always felt threatened by each other? Have we always been this mean to ourselves? I think those were a lot of the initial questions that sparked I and that girl. And it was just like, how do we have dialogue around this? How do we, you know, am I the only one wondering this? Am I the only one, you know, feeling these, you know, like beating myself up all the time? And am I alone in that? It's always begun with a very almost innocent question, like a, a, again, just kind of spawning from curiosity. And then I feel like that curiosity even becomes conviction, right? gets like kind of translated into conviction as I, I believe that whole idea of like, we are taught so much and uh, we can unlearn so much and we mm-hmm. can kind of, this idea within technology, like we're always like upgrading, you know, mm-hmm. with our technology, are we upgrading within our humanity? You know, and so like those are the things that like keep me up at night are the kind of the bigger questions around women around violence against women. I would say you can't have a conversation about violence against women and not talk about Black Lives Matter and not talk about the treatment of the LGBTQ community and kind of this intersectionality of like, how do we all become better human beings. And what does that look like of wanting to push culture forward and and challenge it, to say the least? I I think I'm inherently defiant. So I'm kind of like, does it have to be this way? Can we change it? What (laughs) what does change look like? How do we do do that? Yeah, I agree.
0: I I think that the culture seems to have intensified because when you're asking the question, has it always been like this? Have girls always Mm -hmm. been this mean? And I think there is a new level of it because of the false projection of social media, because of the visibility, because of, you know, I look at the underused uh, definition of visibility when I'm working with people and that's available. So it's, what are Mm -hmm. you available for? And if you are not available to reveal yourself or be yourself, then visibility is going to look very different. And mm-hmm. then the conversations and the perceptions that, you, as you said, people just make and then they have direct contact with you yeah, before actually doing any internal exploration. Now, there, there's some broader question that has, has been trickling in my mind with you because when I was doing the research and I want to talk about protect her now. Sure. You do so much work with men, young men mm-hmm. and young sportsmen who mm-hmm. quite frankly they terrify me. I'm an arty mm-hmm. girl. Like <laughs> what I love about your story is when or what I you know watched you speak is that you talk about good men. You know, you mm-hmm. have four brothers. You grew up with good men. And Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, gosh, I I did not grow up with good men. I can honestly Mm -hmm. say that. And one of my favorite clients ever, her too, with good men. Mm. And she's just this lovely, generous. And I'm wondering if there's something, and gosh, I hope this question comes out the right way, but that sets you up to have better conversations or to deal with this culture in a Mm -hmm. Uh, in a way that makes you feel less like an outsider if you come from being respected by men because it's been so male dominated. Sure. Sure. And, and yeah. I hope that doesn't sound like an anti-feminist question because I'm such a feminist. But what I'm trying to say is there's a, a, there is something I've noticed about the women in my life who say, the men in my life are good men. There yeah. is I think maybe it is that protection. They feel mm-hmm. protected. There is a yep. sense of ease with them that I can only you know, assume comes from that support.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I can only speak from my perspective, but because I had an incredible father and I remember someone told me this once and I have no idea where it was, where it was sourced from. So it's certainly a fact check that needs to happen. But they told me that predominant male figure in a person's life, so whether it's biological or not, is responsible for 80% of a child's confidence. Ooh. And I thought that was really interesting. That's and interesting. they said, and and the predominant female in that child's life is responsible for 80% of the child's empathy. And again, I don't remember, they came up to me after a talk and shared this with me. So I, I have no idea where they got that from. But it always resonated just this idea of, I wonder about that, because I grew up with an incredible father, who front and center for every single who coached me all through soccer it was front center for everything that, you know, in addition to that, uh, had these four incredible brothers and all my best friends growing up were guys because again, like that's what I was comfortable with. And right. I've found that not only in business, do I just feel so comfortable? I arguably more comfortable in a room full of men than I ever felt in a room full of women. Yeah. You know, every like house in high school is like the house where everyone goes and I would come walking in and there'd be like, 10 of my brother's friends in, in our living room. And I'd be like, are any of my brothers here? And they'd be like, no <laughs> practice. So, and so, and it was always me in the proverbial, but what also felt like a very literal locker room, like, That's what, you know, listening in a way that they talked about girls, especially, and but also just listening to the way in which they communicated. And so if anything, there became kind of an irony that I started this like women's empowerment company, because all my guy friends were like, you're such a tomboy. How are you (laughs) running a women's empowerment, Mm -hmm. you know, company? So I, I, I certainly know for, for my life experience that my expectation for men, and maybe it's a self-fulfilled prophecy. My expectation are that men are respectful Mm -hmm. that they are kind, and that they are absolutely championing me. Like that is all that I know when I come into an environment is like, of course you respect Mm -hmm. me. Of course you're going to treat me well. And I think also my tolerance for any kind of disrespect is zero.
0: And it's always been
1: that way. And I remember being in like a, you know, in a bar in college and a guy coming up and like being disrespectful, me being like literally not even responding because that didn't even – Like register on my radar. My dad used to always say, you have to teach people how to treat you. And it's amazing how many times, especially working in Fox Sports ESPN, that environment, Mm -hmm. right? Of how many times I heard offhanded things that were disrespectful or whatever, and just how quickly and back to that communicating very directly, there's no passive aggressive here. And my husband always jokes to this day, and he was a professional athlete for nine years. And he always says, the greatest luxury you ever gave me is I never have to wonder how you feel. Right? Like <laughs> if you're upset, you, I'm going to be the first person who knows, like, there's no, or how are you me saying fine? Right? Mm-hmm. It's always like, no, I didn't like when you did X, Y, and Z. And it's incredible how quickly people can respond to that when they realize those jokes aren't funny. I'm not laughing. It was interesting because when I was running, i that girl did that for a whole lot of years. And uh, I joked that like I at every single women's conference. What I found was we were having a lot of conversations happening in silos. ESPN, uh, Trent Dilfer, Yogi Roth, two really good friends called and they said, Hey, we have this thing called elite 11. Will you come and you know, talk to the top 18 quarterbacks in the country on the Mm -hmm. importance of respecting women. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the time being like, it was totally one of those moments where you're like, I'm not prepared. Like women have an instinct to be like, I'm not prepared. I don't have enough time. You know? And I remember it was one of the first times I just said, yes. Like Mm -hmm. I said, yes, even though I didn't have enough time, I wasn't prepared all these things you had a lifetime of preparation. Come on. You were in the but, locker room. I was like, any- literal locker exactly, room translation. Exactly. But for totally different reasons, you right. know, and all of a sudden, okay. and, you know, ESPN was filling. It was like all these things, like the stakes were so high of like, I could fail on like a very big scale. You know, like, that's all I was thinking was like, I've been talking to women. Like, I don't know this demographic and I, I haven't spoken and I don't have a presentation. And, and then ended up being the whole backstory that most people don't know is like flights ended up getting changed around. The schedule gets changed. I'm told that I'm I'm speaking at 4 p.m. And all I'm thinking was like at least all the day to put together a presentation because I had no slides. I had no concept of what I was going to talk about. And flight gets delayed. I don't get in till midnight. I, you know, turn on my phone uh, to have them saying, actually, we changed the schedule around. I hope you don't mind. You're actually speaking at seven o'clock in the morning now, uh, not at 4pm. Hair and makeup starts at, you know, six. And Trent wants to meet with you at like 530 to discuss what you're talking about. And I am hysterical. Like I called my husband. And I was like, I'm going to fake an injury. Like I have no presentation. I like <laughs> it's midnight. I'm not even in my hotel yet. I have to be up at four o'clock in the morning. Like this is going to be the worst. And, uh, and it was my husband, uh, who had this awesome suggestion, which was exactly what you said. He was like, sweetheart, you're built for this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is your life's work. And now you get to go back in locker rooms, not doing injury reports, which is a lot of the reason why I left the sports world was like my heart was really for girls and women and and he said now you're getting like you're getting this invitation to like bridge the gap between the two loves of your life and he said and at the end of the day like if you speak from your heart like that's all that matters and he said and by the way do you know who's going to be in the room and I said of course they gave me a list of you know all the athletes and he was the one who suggested he was like well I would pull pictures of their sisters and moms and girlfriends I'd put it in your presentation Mm -hmm. and I was like what (laughs) I was like that uh Feels a little sketchy, and he was like, "Yeah, (laughs) just do it," you know. Right, and uh, and I mean, that is literally. I pulled pictures of sisters, moms, girlfriends. I went in. I said, "Listen, we're gonna have a conversation about the importance of you know respecting women." And of course, you have all these athletes who are like, "Ugh, I've heard this talk a thousand different ways. Like we're the bad guys, you know." So they're already kind of tuning out. I pulled up pictures and I memorized uh, the names of their sisters, and moms, and girlfriends, and I said, "It's really different when it's her." And I click the next slide and all of a sudden you saw these guys being like, <gasps> you know, just like <laughs> one, it's just completely sketchy that you have a stranger who now you're looking at a picture of your like little sister, you know. But I think the thing I wasn't prepared for was just the emotional reaction that these young men had to this, that suddenly we weren't talking about girls and women in theory. We were talking about the girls and women that they loved and they cared about the very most in the whole world. And I was inviting them to stand up on behalf of those women. And then back to that criticism, you know, and I've certainly been criticized by, you know, well, they should respect all girls and all women shouldn't just be their, you know, sisters and moms. And I'm like, I don't disagree. We're just not there yet. got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. And if this is a a technique or a tactic, you know, that gets them to feel Mm -hmm. something that makes it immediately personal, maybe that's just a stepping stone and that's okay. And then they came out to me after and were like hugging me and very emotional and in tears. And I was like, what? And I was thinking this is like favor to a friend. And then a little snippet ended up going viral. And it was like, felt like overnight I was hired by Division One locker rooms all over the country saying, can you come into our locker room? Can you have that conversation? Because it wasn't from an angry, pointing fingers, blaming, shaming standpoint. It was, you know, I started off saying, I think you're real life superheroes. You know, I think the whole country is talking about you like you're the problem. And I also think you're the cure. And this is why I think you're protectors at heart. I think it's how you're hardwired. I think that you're built for this. And we've never needed you as much as we need you right now. And it's incredible to see the reaction when you invite someone to participate in something as opposed to telling them that they're the problem and they're the reason that, you know, this problem exists. This year,
0: when Kobe Bryant passed, and I again I'm not a sportswoman but that mm. shook me in such a profound way him and his daughter and right. then the sort of the conversation that started from actually some friends of friends about well he raped a woman I just kind of thought to myself and I this is when do we have the conversation about forgiveness, and I'm sure. probably an unlikely person to have this conversation because I okay. do often go down hard on that kind of yep. behavior, but in that case, okay. he there was such an effort to reform mm-hmm. to heal to have the conversation to so how do we even broach the conversation of for of forgiveness sure. with women? yep because I, I think th- you know and and i I think that has to be part of it. I think that has to be part of it. And I'm not, you know, this is not making it right because there's nothing right with that at all. But I think there. otherwise, what's the motivation to change if Mm -hmm. there's no forgiveness for these men who do F it up? right? Yep, because the, yep. the culture sets them up, quite frankly. Here, you're 18. Percent. Here's some power. Here's some money. The world yep. is going to love you. You can do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. And I know But even in an entertainment, there are lots of people who enable the kind of behavior.
1: Yep, of course. Right? I, I think that Like you said, it's two sides of the same coin if we're ever going to get to a place of actual change. And one is is addressing, acknowledging, listening to the righteous indignation and anger. There's Mm -hmm. righteous anger that if you're a woman in America today and you Mm -hmm. see the things that are happening, and not even just a woman, if you are a person... Mm-hmm. who is looking at statistics of one in four, one in five girls will be sexually assaulted on a college campus, mm-hmm. one in two women walk around having been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Like mm-hmm. if we don't all have a low grade fever out of like a mild rage that exists yeah. all the time, then we're not living and breathing. And again, that's just with women. And so yeah. I think when we look at social change, we have to make space, which I think is very much happening in this moment right now with Black Lives Matters. We have not made space in order to hear the righteous indignation and anger that is so tangible and real, yeah. right? And and one, acknowledging that, listening to that, seeing that, honoring that, honoring that they're very real, raw wounds that exist. And simultaneously, the only way forward is by having really radical conversations, like things like grace, and mm-hmm. things like forgiveness, and things like rehabilitation. and And what's hard is when someone is in so much pain, right? Because again, this criticism, right? When people just like fling things at me and they're like, you're a rape sympathizer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa!" Not the case, right? Um, But I also, do I understand where that pain is coming from? Yes, I totally understand where that's coming from. But again, it's like, I also, my dad used to always say, you know, the idea that we can experience pain and we should experience the entire gamut of all of the human emotions. But if we sit there for too long, that be- that can become dangerous, right? Because then our life becomes defined by our pain, by our suffering. And so I think we have to acknowledge it and really sit there in the silence with survivors for as long as they need, and not but. And I think in order to get to the other side of it, we have to, like you said, start incentivizing right? By saying, listen, we're really imperfect, messy human beings. And we are neither our worst mistake nor our greatest achievement. And so if we can offer grace in those moments and say like, wow, this is someone who made really bad mistakes and with very serious consequences and was very damaging to, to another human being, to other people. That being said, like they've spent a lifetime reforming and they've spent a lifetime learning how to become an incredible husband, how to become an incredible father. And so it was interesting because when I did a post about Kobe, my first day on the job was his 81 point game in Los Angeles at the Staples Center. And my husband being a professional basketball player, I mean, looked up to Kobe for so many reasons. And when I did a post about Kobe saying like, you know, for this family, like my heart goes out to this wife and to these daughters, like uh, a husband and, and a father was lost and immediately in social media is such a coward's favorite yeah. hiding place right because immediately mm-hmm. was like how can you say that he raped someone he and I was yeah. like first off where well where's the grace in this moment that there's some little girls out there who lost their daddy like yeah where's that also right the whole concept Richard Rohr is one of my favorite authors he wrote a book called everything belongs right mm-hmm. that we can be messy and we can be mean and we can make mistakes and we can have like a miraculous you know, piece of us that is like God breathed and all of it, like all of it belongs. I think the bravest, most courageous conversations that we can be having right now in the midst of Me Too and Time's Up is what does progress look like? What what does moving forward look like? And I do think that is having really brave conversation around things like forgiveness. And things like rehabilitation and, you know, how are we better educating again? How are we working with young men to help them unlearn and to stop reading off a cultural script they've been handed, which, you know, this, this idea of toxic masculinity is, is damaging to all of us. It's not just to women. It's damaging. The cost is so great.
0: I know you see- spent some time as a consultant on 13 Reasons Why, which I think should be required viewing for teenagers because I was watching it and also realizing the level of complexity, like looking back going, gosh, was it? Your to your point, was it this hard back at that sure. time? And it it just wasn't. Like mm-hmm. yes, those things were going on, but now yeah. everybody sees them. Sure. So that rumor has a video attached to it about sure. what she did or didn't yep. do. So tell me how you became involved with that show.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that one thing I'm really proud of in that show was just the like unflinching willingness True. to really give us a vehicle, give us Hollywood fictional characters to talk about the things that are really happening. And whether it's teen suicide or whether it's sexual assault, you know, I think that so many people got so passionately upset about that. And what I was saying, my kind of reaction as an activist is like, oh, yes, again, like I want you to get agitated. I want you to get upset. But I don't want you to get upset at like a Hollywood fictional like actors being paid very well to like fake these scenes. I want you to be upset that this is happening in high schools. Everywhere, all over the country, and this is just giving us a vehicle to talk about the stuff that is really happening. And there was a moment where Bryce's character and the guy who was playing him, who is such a lovely human being, and so part of it is like just the irony that I'm like, you're so kind and lovely, and you're. God, him. I hated like, him in that show. Horrible. Oh no, my no, god, no, he was he awful. I just can't even. just
0: because you yeah. know him because yeah. you know that character, yeah. you know him, and of I of was course. just like.
1: Oh, like yeah, every time exactly.
0: I saw his face.
1: Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and Justin, <laughs> Justin, who plays Bryce, like I said, is such one and incredibly talented storyteller, right? To make any of us hate that character as much as we did, makes yeah. him one and incredibly talented storyteller. But when he and I were sitting there kind of wrestling with the script and going back and forth, and he was saying, you know, my character, like he's a monster. He's, you know, all these things. and And I really hit pause. And I said, can I offer you a suggestion? Can I offer you... The suggestion of not playing him as this kind of psychopath monster, but as an ordinary kid who has been told and taught a level of privilege that now transcends to humans. Like you get what you want when you want because you want it, right? Mm -hmm. And can your character, can you come up with memories? And this is so much of like an actor's job, right? Create these memories for your character in which your dad told you that. You take what you want, you know? And I was like, so instead of playing him as a monster, play him, he's so relatable. There's so many men who have that paradigm. And okay. the reality is it's an incredibly dangerous paradigm when you don't realize that you can't take when what you're taking is a human, especially when there's no consent present. And I just thought Justin was so brave to play that character from a place of privilege, not turning him into this kind of unrelatable you know, person, but instead saying this happens unfortunately so often. So, how do we let even young men see themselves, aspects of themselves in this character, and really have a gut check of like, whoa, that's actually not cool? Yeah. And this
0: privilege conversation obviously comes into Black Lives Matter too. And this right. whole conversation, we need to talk to our kids about the police. And I'm thinking we need to talk to young white men about privilege. That's what we really need to have the conversation Mm -hmm. about. Somebody needs to be leading that conversation too. And I feel like you are. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a woman, you are in coming at it from sports, which in this culture is one of the, I feel the beginning
1: of where that privilege begins. I always say the reason that we started Protector in Locker Rooms is that, you know, athletes are the 21st century gladiators. Right, I mean, they are kind of the way that we put them on these pedestals. The way that we c- have created a concept of masculinity is like the biggest, fastest, strongest, you know. And I was watching the documentary by Jennifer Newsom, and it's called "The Masks We Live In," and it's incredible. And it's the counterpart this is the first one. Yeah, yeah, it's the counterpart, Jeez. the male counterpart to Misrepresentation, which was her first documentary. And in it, at one point, my husband, who is six nine, right, this huge. <His> And he like looks at me and he's like tears. And I was like, oh my God, babe what, what are you crying? And he's very tender hearted and he cries at the drop of a hat. And like at our wedding, I got to the end of the aisle and he was like hyperventilating crying so hard <laughs> that I was like, Hoffman, get it together. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so he was very emotional and he hits pause and he looks at me and it was during one of the testimonials when one of the men was saying that when he was younger, he was bullied because he was, you know, more effeminate and not as kind of like, traditionally masculine and and brad just looked at me and he said had i not just been like in this avatar body he was like i've always been the biggest i've always been the best athlete i've always been all these things but he is so gentle and he is so kind and he's so sensitive and he was like had i not just been this incredible athlete like i would have totally been bullied like i did not ascribe to like any of the stuff that like all these other guys were doing the way they talked about women the like Random hookups, like all the things that are very part of that kind of like jock culture. He was like, I just, that wasn't who I was. And he was really emotional about that of like, the only reason why I wasn't targeted and bullied was because I just happened to be this incredible athlete. And so I think when we look at kind of the the trend setters and the influencers within the male, the male space, so many athletes, you know, or who like the little boys are looking up to. And so what we found was identifying those locker rooms and, and creating a new normal, a new standard, a new expectation of what it means to be again, kind of a 21st century man who like boys will be boys as long as there are you know, always respecting women, like kind of these new adage, you know, bro code, you know, all day, like love, support, defend each other, but not at the expense of other people, you know, and that idea of like, can you inject into this new concept of bro code is I'm going to hold you accountable to being a really good human. That's what, you know, like, to me, it's kind of this evolution, because there's a lot of really good about bro code, right about that brotherhood, Mm -hmm. it just becomes really sinister, when it becomes complete greasing of the wheels and an utter lack of accountability. And so I think it's just kind of bolstering it with like their new expectations and how incredible that we are seeing this moment in time in which we are being so directly confronted with Me Too and Black Lives Matters and like these movements, you know, like really showcasing like how severe the problem is so that we can start being forced into conversations about solutions.
0: Sounds like men need the voice lessons too you know, they're holding space sometimes in silence for what other men do because they don't want to appear less masculine. Sure. Yeah. They don't speak up because they don't want to break what is the rule to
1: be a man. Yep, exactly. And I think that so much of that is invisible, just like privilege, right? So much of like bro code is this invisible thing that they, they don't even necessarily have the vernacular or words to identify. They just know in a moment where something sketchy is going down, they don't say anything. And so I think part of it is like preparing them for those situations. Yes, for those conversations. Yeah, and part of it is like speaking speaking truth and making this invisible system visible. And I mean, that's what we're talking about with privilege, right? This invisible system that I've benefited from my entire life has to be made visible, both to myself and to everyone else, in order for us to see like, my God, this isn't fair. (laughs) Not only is this not fair, this is, you know... This is a travesty and it has to be changed. Every time that I've come into locker rooms and had these very practical conversations with young men about, let me make this invisible structure visible for you. And you tell me if you agree with this, all of a sudden you see them being like, no, that's not okay. Like, give me the words. What do I say in those moments? You know, when I see something, because even that men aren't nearly from a very young age as verbal as Mm -hmm. women are, they're not taught to be as verbal. And so I can't tell you how many guys have come out to me after them and like, oh my gosh, I just never even had, and I always say the line like, hey, we're better than that, right? Like we don't do that, right? Just like a phrase that they have in their back pocket. And then how many people have like contacted me on social media or emailed me or somehow been like, oh my God, I used it, I used the line, this was happening, you know? And there were these homophobic jokes and I told them like, we don't do that, man. And all of a sudden, like, <laughs> we don't realize, like, the practicality of language and, like, right. the power of language when you give people the actual words. Instead of saying, like, I always joking in my TED Talk around, like, bystander and intervention. Like, none right. of these young men are talking that way. No. So can you give them actual tools in that moment and prepare them? It's not if. It is when you yeah. see something that's not cool. Now you know what to say. And, and it's shocking how many Uh, guys have been so proud to, like, report back, you know? I love it.
0: If I asked you to complete the sentence, my wish for every
1: other woman is? My wish for, for every woman is that she had an undeniable true north of exactly who she is and was unapologetic about pursuing that.
0: Beautiful. What about your wish for every man?
1: My wish for every man is that he had a true north and that he was unapologetic about it and that he knew and loved himself as much as we put them on pedestals, that that could be authentic for him.
0: You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at VoiceLessonsPodcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at VoiceLessonsPodcast.com.